This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. If you think long term, everything points to bringing in human talent and allowing them to thrive and creating the kind of environment where they feel like they are expected and reflected and respected. I'm Lyle Troxell, and on this episode of We Are Netflix, the second in our two-part series, Addressing Anti-Blackness and Promoting Allyship in the Workplace. We're featuring a conversation between two inclusion leaders at Netflix, Vernay Myers, who heads up our inclusion strategy, and Wade Davis, who leads our product inclusion team. In part one, Wade and Vernay talked about the impacts of anti-Black racism in American society and inside the corporate world. In part two, they'll discuss some concrete steps organizations can take to combat systemic racism and build a workplace where diversity flourishes. Moderating the conversation is guest host Lexi Nasida, Director of Editorial and Publishing on our marketing team. I think I'm interested to talk more about hiring specifically if we can, because I, I think that's such a crucial area for Netflix in particular to do better in this space. It's a little bit tricky because we are told you cannot factor in any element of someone's racial identity into a hiring decision. But how are we to how can we have those policies, which of course are put in place to prevent discrimination against black people and other non-white people, but how can we also say, it's important for me to have a black person in this role? Can we say that? Can we think that? I mean, what? how do you flip that distinction, I guess? I think that you can ask questions to understand a person's background and, and your background is going to be informed by your identity. And then you can say, does this person have an experience, have a history, right, that is informed by their identity that I don't currently have on my team that is going to allow me to innovate differently, allow me to be um, more creative, allow folks on my teams to have different types of conversations because they're going to be different questions asked, right? So I actually don't believe that, that one, that culture is, is invisible because as soon as you put someone who is in the dominant group in a room with people who don't look like them, all of a sudden they tell you that they're uncomfortable, right? So so the comfort that they feel 90% of the time is them understanding that they have, that the water's warm to their liking, right? And it's just like how folks say, um, like how folks will tell you that they don't see racism or they don't see race, which is also a lie, because if you were to ask them what them what they like to be black, they would say no immediately. Right. So when we think about hiring, it is not like someone walks into the door and you don't perceive their gender, that you don't perceive their race. The question is, is are you asking the types of questions to understand the, ex- the lived experiences that they have had that may be informed by their identities and then understanding the people who you have on your team, do they have similar experiences, similar backgrounds? And and if you're trying to build a culture and build an institution that allows you to take your company to the to the heights of of the great type of businesses that have ever existed, you're going to need different types of people with different identities and different backgrounds and experience. Yeah. I mean, I think we just, we have to be able to talk about it, right? Because I, I feel like I'm hearing from so many Black colleagues right now, like, wow, I'm getting reached out to on LinkedIn so much in this moment. And, you know, I feel like I could 
get a lot of jobs that maybe I wouldn't have felt confident that I could get in the past. And I think that's, I can imagine that that's a difficult feeling because on the one hand, it's like, great, you know, that's opportunities. That's a good thing for me. But at the same time, you know, it's complex to know that this cultural moment is part of the reason why you got hired. And that's some element of your identity that doesn't necessarily seem like it's connected to your core skill set is why you got hired. But I think you're right to say, Wade, that like that identity and people's background is part of their experience, is part of their skill and is part of what makes up a good team. Yeah. You know, Lexi, it is, it is a complex thing because the last thing we want is people just hiring people based on skin color and like not on their, you know, that this would be a good place for them or that they could learn or grow or thrive. Right. Because that's a different kind of racism. Right. It's just, uh, and also, especially if you are hiring one, like, you know, so like we've got one of them, you know, and thinking that that's what we should be doing. <laughs> right. Cause a lot of tokenism starts you know, with this real desire to diversify one's team or one's company. And so I think what Wade is saying is, wait, we know we have plenty of studies that say you need to be, you need diverse perspectives in order to be innovative, in order to get out of groupthink, in order to be imaginative, creative, even like in order to reflect the people who you are trying to serve, your customers and, and your clients. So we know that diversity is important and we have lots of suggestion that there's a correlation between people's lived experience shaped a lot by their race and their gender and so forth and their perspective, right? So, I mean, one of the things that I feel like is definitely a part of being Black in the United States is that I have a systems mentality. Like, I understand that there are systems. In other words, as a little kid growing up as a Black person, you're looking at what people are saying, and then you're looking at reality, and you're like, hmm, these things don't match, right? And so all of a sudden, you can see systems, and you are you can critique things, and so forth. So I actually do believe that that's a part of being a one-down group in a society, is that you can see what's not real, and you can see the gaps. Um, however, you know, am I the right person for this job based on what is necessary? That's a different uh, question. And so what you said, Lexi, is real. We've got to get comfortable talking about this because if not, we're going to overhire, which means that we will like be, you know, just hiring people for the wrong reasons or we will underhire, which is that we often ask that Black people show up with more credentials, with more experience. They have to be in the word in quotes. I'm making a quotes thing here. Articulate. Right. And sometimes you're asking black people to jump through so many more hoops uh, than you are for the average white candidate. So both are not perfect. What we are trying to do is to say, and I love this because Wade's team came up with this idea of being additive hiring. Right. So we're trying to talk about representation as being important for our company. It absolutely is. There's no way we're going into the future and being successful unless we can be better represent, uh, better uh, showed better representation in our teams for the work that we're doing as an entertainment company, as a tech company, uh, as a company that is serving our customers. 
And at the same time, we need to look at the barriers that have prevented that representation. And part of that is where we go looking, because we are often taking people from other companies that are also um, having deep, like severe underrepresentation of black people, right? So we're wondering why our pool is what it is. And it's like, it's who we're, where we're pulling from. So we need to pay attention to even the source of our talent. Absolutely. Wade, I wonder if we can talk more about what you've done specifically on your team. And I think the issues of talent pools and hiring and the different kinds of racism that show up in the tech industry in particular are very interesting to talk about and and something that I don't think a lot of people get to understand. Um, Can you talk about some of the the specific tactics that you've developed doing inclusion work for that side of the business, uh, one-on-one leader coaching, other stuff that you've done? Yeah. um, You know, transparently, I don't know if I would separate the tech arm of Netflix from the rest of the company, right? So like, yes, the people on the product side have a different job, right? You know, then let's say our content folks or our legal folks, but their understanding and valuing of blackness or, or lack thereof is still the same personal and emotional journey, right? And I would say that that my job and our entire inclusion team's job is to start like folks on their charter to understand themselves, right? And and we do that in multiple ways, right? So, so we in, in product do what's what's this called like one-to-one coaching, right? So that means that I'm sitting with a leader that, that I'm asking them really self-reflective, interrogative questions for them to understand themselves first, right? Because I can't expect you to show up as a leader for other people unless you learn how to put your mask on first, right? So how can I help them be more self-reflective to make better decisions to articulate the value of diversity and inclusion and representation, and then to uh, do a, a really interesting scrub to say, historically, like who are the people on my team who have been able to thrive? Who are the people on my team who have got more promotions? Who are the people on my team who haven't done well? And what does that say or what might it say about my my leadership? And, and what are the ways that I need to grow and evolve and adapt my leadership that more people who may not look like me can be more successful? So it, it really starts with an individual inventory where we look at some different competencies for actual leaders. So whether that's being courageous, whether that's a cultural competency, right? So we try to apply it back to our Netflix values and then to ask leaders to think about um, like, how can you expand your, like what are the actual spots rather where you have deficits? How do we start to grow those and cultivate inside of you um, skills that, as I said earlier, just allow more people on your actual team to thrive? And then how do you cascade that learning down, right? Because if the, if the information only stays with you as a leader and it's not going down throughout your team and you can actually run a workshop on diversity and inclusion, it is very easy for them to call myself or Renee or anyone else on the inclusion team to run some work workshops, but it's actually much more powerful if a team's leader is actually able to execute the same types of trainings after we've spent copious amounts of time really getting them to 
to do the work. Like that's a transformative experience and less of a transactional experience. And that's really what our inclusion team as a whole is rooted in. So I wouldn't say that it, it's a lot different in product, but I would say that that because I have a larger staff, I'm able to go a little bit more narrow and deep. When you get into those one-on-one conversations, I what are some of the qualities or the green flags, I guess, if you will, of a leader who really is like, equipped and ready to start having those conversations and even start leading some of those seminars? How do you know that someone's there? Well, one, um, if it, is there a self-reflection side of this, this leader to actually be able to name the places where they still need, need to grow in, right? If I'm walking into a conversation with any leader and one of the, the, the questions are, help me understand um, what you believe an inclusive leader is, right? And and if they're and if a leader says, oh well, my job is to help the women on my team to thrive, I actually know that that leader's already bifurcated how he's thinking about the male-identified folks on his team than than the women, right? So it's really me showing up with lots of types of questions, but also me as a coach trying to create the psychological safety for that leader to actually own the places. Um, inside of them that they know that they still have growing to to do, right? So I'm a believer that we all know the places where we have challenges. If I have really set set, set with with myself, ask myself those questions that I've always been been afraid to, I can name, right? Like so one one of the things that I used to do when I taught at NYU is I would go into class the first day and I would go, hey guys, how's everyone doing today? And then the very next day, I would go into class and I would go, hey, girls, how's everyone doing? And lo and behold, there would be one or two of the men in the class who would raise their hand and ask a question about why am I calling everyone girls, right? So I do similar types of strategies with leaders just to pick up on, like, are they catching this down? Like, or are they allowing certain, like, are they allowing me to say certain things without questioning, without interrogating certain certain things? So it's really like a long form interview where we try to p- kind of role play back and forth and I'm pressure testing different understanding and competencies around what it means to be an inclusive leader. Hmm. Renee, I would ask the same question of you, I guess, what when you talk to executives here, even when you made the decision to come to Netflix in the first place, what are some of the signs that give you confidence that people are ready or, or that people have a lot more work to do? One of the things that and I think we I said this, but I'm going to repeat it is that like our vision for our inclusion team is to quit equip all of our employees with the consciousness and the and the competence and the courage and the compassion that would allow them to be a transformative force for inclusion in our company, right? So that's the vision, and. People, different leaders are in in different places around those uh, four C's. But one of the things I look for in a leader is courage and compassion. Um, Because even when you know, if you aren't coming with the courage to act on what you know, or the compassion to uh, forgive yourself when you're making a mistake, or to find the kind of empathy you need to understand what it's like to be someone on your team or in the company or whatever. If you don't have those two, then it's really, really hard. And I think because one of the things we see um, with um, allies who are trying to be helpful here is they may have read this book, 
They may have worked on this thing, but they aren't really stepping up or they're not like, wait, said to me today, I'm tired of people telling me that they're learning and listening. Okay, what are you going to do with the learning and the listening now, right? So there's a certain kind of courage. Like, for example, um, when um, George Floyd was killed right after, right before that, Arbery, Breonna Taylor, so on and so forth, our team created a set of guides for leaders to have conversations in their teams. Some leaders felt competent and capable and courageous and compassionate. It was awesome. And some were not either, either not competent or they were just not courageous, whatever, you know, and so that didn't happen. And what was really upsetting to me is that we were not able to take care of our black employees the way I wanted that to happen. I wanted people to find in their home, in their home base, in their team base, that kind of compassion and that kind of caring and that kind of competence to talk about the issues. And by the way, when I say competence, I'm not talking about perfection. There is no perfection in this work. There is perfecting and getting better, absolutely, so, for example, if someone steps out and Leah steps out and they make a mistake and they account for their mistake and they just keep leaning in, I'm good with that leader, right? Because all of us are learning. Um, depends on what identity you're in and what privilege group you're from, but most of us have work to do around some group, right? Um, and when I first came here, the thing that impressed me so much about Netflix was how much of an interest and willingness there was. Because, you know, Wade and I, we did consulting in lots of companies. And that is not always the case, right? It is not always the case that people are like, yay, inclusion is here, right? Um, and even with that openness and that caring and that enthusiasm, there is still a lot to do to really be an inclusive leader. There is, there are skills that you have to learn. There's a, there's a humility, right? And a lot of the things that make for a good inclusive leader, as Wade said, is already in our culture, right? Courage is already in our culture. Um, and so I think that we still have a lot to do around skill building and accountability. Those are the, the areas, I think, we, you know, you can always learn and we will always be learning. And I think that those are the two areas where our team is going to really focus. Hmm. I think um, talking about the Netflix culture values and which ones are most important here, I, I feel like it's so important to talk about humility as well, because, you know, you both spoke at the beginning of our conversation about centering yourself as an ally and making sure that you're not doing that. And I think we all have to realize that if we are, if we're in this to get points, to get credit, then we're in it for the wrong reasons. And if we're not willing to make a total ass out of ourselves and completely embarrass ourselves in the process, then we're not really committed to doing the work because that is a really small price to pay um, for the benefits of how this can move us forward as a society. Um, but I don't know, I mean, how much have you guys found that value and other culture values to be helpful or to be even at odds at times, Renee? I think you mentioned that at the beginning, how some, some of our values might seem like they are sometimes counter mm -hmm. to the work of inclusion. No, I would say I am so on board with you here about the humility. Absolutely. Even the selflessness. Absolutely. Um, 
And yeah, it's so much about bias works in favor of maintaining the status quo. And so even when you have some values that, and I think this is the big exploration right now for our company is to figure out like, how do you evolve the values? Um, as my mother, my mother says all the time, you know, when you know better, you must do better, right? And so I think we're starting to recognize that as we grow and as we become a global company, we have to either get clearer on the various ways that our values should show up and not be so narrow about how we think people are demonstrating a value. And there may also be values that are just too much of the status quo and that needs to be sort of evolved and expanded. Uh, we might discover that there are some other values that might be more culturally competent or that will allow for more people of difference to succeed. So I think that's an interrogation that we're ready for as a company because it's, we've gotten really big really quickly and we've made a, a commitment to be global. And so it requires us to pay attention to our culture in ways that maybe we haven't before. Yeah. And the only build that I, that I would have is, you know, when you think of like our value of communication, right. And, and one of the words in there is being candid, building an inclusive environment and being an inclusive leader means that you as a leader understand that candidness on a black woman is read differently than candidness on a white man. Right. So do our leaders have the sophistication, the nuance and thinking to interrogate, like, what am I feeling right now? Like if, this was said by a white man, would I have the same type of reaction? Can a leader have that level of self-reflexivity and, and poise to actually pause and think like, am I reacting to what they're saying or, or am I reacting to who is actually saying it? So to Brene's point, I actually don't think that our, that our values are counter to, um, to, to certain people. I think that, and, and I'm saying what V said, like, uh, is there a larger, um, way that those values can be expressed and can our culture continue to expand to allow different people to express those values in ways that feel authentic and natural to them? Well, I think I'd like to end on just asking one simple question, which is actually not at all a simple question. Um, you know, racism and capitalism are very bound up in each other. And of course, any company is found is, is made up of individuals that come from a background, come from a society that has so much racism and anti-Blackness in it, as you said, Wade. So given those realities, do you think it's possible to build, with what we have now at Netflix, to build a truly anti-racist corporation? If I were to think about Netflix, is it truly possible to build an anti-racist corporation? Yes, but it would require all of us, and I'm including Black people in that as well, to give up our safety. And what I mean by safety is to give up the comfort that you feel when someone else um, who doesn't look like you and feel like you and act like you isn't allowed to thrive. Like, can I give up my safety? Can I give up my identity? Can I push back against those actual norms? Can I ask myself, my leader, everyone in the organization, really hard questions? Can we do really, can we create real forms of truth? Can we create real forms of accountability? 
can we do a truth and reconciliation types of things inside of an organization, right? Like if that can happen, if we can truly kind of fracture ourselves open first, right? Because as we talked about, like the first job of an ally is to fracture yourself open first and to really see yourself in all of your beauty, but also in all of your ugliness. If we do that, the organization will naturally fracture. And then thereby, like all of our love and our joy will come out because all of the hate that we feel towards ourselves, which can manifest itself in the way that we hate others or can fear others will dissipate and all that is left is love. And I know that that sounds really pie in the sky, right? But I know I've done that for myself and and we either act out of fear or out of love, right? Because they both can't come from the same root and fear actually doesn't have a root to stand on once you actually start to show up with love and compassion. I love that, Wade. I love that. I mean, for me, what I see is that there is a continuum, you know, I think companies go from being monocultural to sort of thinking about being multicultural, then thinking about being anti-racist, and then maybe ending up with anti-racist and multicultural, right? And if I were to say, I do believe the profit motive makes it hard for people to see what Wade was saying. Trying to think long term is a problem for the way capitalist uh, corporations are set up right now. A lot of what they do are about short term gains and so forth. And I think the smartest companies, and I'm hoping that that Netflix is one of them, is that we're thinking long term. And if you think long term, everything points to bringing in human talent and allowing them to thrive and creating the kind of environment where they feel like they are expected and reflected and respected, as we often say. And that um, what Wade also mentioned is that they can bring that love, that they can, they're not so tired trying to fend off all of the isms, right? But they're just there and their hearts are open to one another and they're learning from each other. And the organization is learning from them and is inviting them as part of the decision-making. It's definitely, it can get funky. It can take longer. It can have tensions, but the ultimate end is, and, and I think we also talked about this, that this whole idea of allyship is to make things right for all people so that we're not right (laughs) until all of us are right, you know? And that is what I think is extremely important for the society, whether a corporate culture can get there, I don't know, but I know we can get closer than where we are right now. Beautifully said both. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Wade and Vernay, so much for your wonderful words and for being here. And I understand you have each brought a quote for us to think about as we leave today. Wade, would you share? Yeah, so my quote is by the Indigenous Australian leader, Leela Watson. And it says, if you have come here to help me, then you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And I think that is really important for people to understand that all of these isms equally yet differently impact us all.
Todd, I, I really love that. That's awesome. So mine is actually from one of Wade's favorite, James Baldwin, the amazing James Baldwin. My favorite. Like, he is the favorite. There is no number two. He's number one. And he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And my hope is that as people in this country and throughout the world are beginning to face that anti-Blackness is real, that it will allow us to make real change. So Great. Good. So good. Beautiful. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Wade and Brene, so much for your wonderful words and for being here for all of us at Netflix. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Lexi. And that concludes our two-part series, Addressing Anti-Blackness and Promoting Allyship in the Workplace, with Wade Davis, Renee Myers, and Lexi Nasita. We Are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxell. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.